This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Kia ora and welcome to Reserved Recommendations. This is a show about great trash, difficult art, and our complicated relationships with art and culture. My name's Hugh, I'm the host of the show, and I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a very mild content warning for the show as a whole. Sometimes our recommendations on this show are reserved just because the thing that we're discussing is in some way not good, but sometimes there are aspects of the art or artist that may be confronting for some people. Check the episode descriptions for more information, and do be aware of your listening environment. Kia ora and welcome. This is the very first episode of Reserved Recommendations for uh, 2023. I think I think we're on season four. I'm I'm basically just calling years seasons in order to sound flash. So um I think I think that's where we're at. <laughs> anyway, uh kicking things off with a bang, as it were, it gives me very great pleasure to introduce uh this evening's guests. I have Willow, Vixen, and Scarlet from the Good, Bad, Horrible uh, podcast from uh, the US. How's it going, guys? Going great. How great. are you? Great. How are you? Yeah. I'm doing not bad. I'm doing not bad. I was saying before we hit um, record that New Zealand is currently experiencing the finding out after the fucking round uh, phase of climate change. Um, we've been very like, oh, disastrous stuff happens other places. And uh, I think last week, the week before, our largest city, city was mostly underwater and everybody else kind of just nearly flooded. Yeah. And we're looking at doing that again this weekend. Uh, and in between that, it's just like swampy and hot and sticky and horrible. So I'm uh, melting and I have a window open in my home office so people might hear birds on the podcast. We'll see. Oh, how funny. Well, we are in Dallas, Texas, and we've had some crazy weather here the last couple of weeks. Last week, we were covered in ice, and then this week, it's been raining cats and dogs. So we we might be flooding there with you soon. Yeah, that, that'll be very exciting. I mean, you guys had that whole thing where everything froze solid and none of the power worked, right? That yes, was a couple that was of years ago. Years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, um, and we were holding our breath this last week, wondering if it was going to hold up for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a worry. Um, I guess we we still have like the legacy of a of an integrated power grid, so things like mostly work unless bits of it actually get physically destroyed. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's certainly a worry. Anyway, this is not actually a climate change episode, despite how uh, <laughs> relevant that is increasingly becoming to everybody. Um, you guys do kind of, uh, not kind of, you guys do like a, a sexuality podcast. And what you wanted to talk about was uh, was like shame in sexuality and, and how that affects people. Um, and so... Uh, for listeners, sometimes this podcast is a podcast that talks about like specific works of fiction um, or bits of art, and sometimes we try and solve the world's problems by dealing with large philosophical concept, uh, concepts, and it, it is difficult. So this is one of those ones. Um, do you, I guess, maybe want to lead off uh, by, I guess, 
I don't know, um, un- unpacking where you where you think that is. Um, I guess what what I'm asking is for is a is a a picture of where you feel like the the current world of of shame with sex is, um, particularly in the states. Uh, because as I was also saying before we hit record. Um, here in New Zealand, we get a lot of American culture secondhand, and sometimes it makes perfect sense. And sometimes you guys talk about stuff on on TV that uh, seems like stuff that everybody knows, but is actually kind of foreign. And I'm curious how much overlap in terms of like sexuality there is. Well, certainly our Judeo Christian roots are very prevalent even today, and that is permeated through our society and I think has resulted unfortunately into what has become a lot of shame associated with sex in general. And I would say disproportionately so for women um, in particular. So there's multiple elements to this because there's the kind of religious influence over the topic of sex at in general, and then there's the gender differentiation in how it's affected women versus men. And one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast about this topic was to try to chip away some of the shame that so many people, and particularly women, have associated with this. Um, I have talked to woman after woman after woman who has so much in the way of hangups regarding sex that prevent her from being able to fully enjoy it. And that's tragic to me. So that is, I guess, in part, why I wanted to tackle this. Um, do you mind maybe like unpacking the, the religious bit a little more, I guess? Uh, so for contrast, New Zealand is... You know, it it was a, a white colonial project um, from Britain, but it was always um, more secular than quite a lot of those colonial projects. Like it, it's theor- theoretically a Christian nation, but it was always like less sectarian because there were fewer people, and so you couldn't really have sectarian conflict. Um, and so there's kind of a lot of tradition of like we build one church and then all the different denominations take turns to use it. And that's kind of diluted the influence of any one particular religious philosophy on how things are taught here a bit. Now take all of that and reverse it. And you have America because we were founded by Puritans coming for, in theory, religious freedom, uh, which means they just wanted to oppress other people but so jumping back a few episodes you spoke about texas and got to talk about how we were a mix of so many different origins and it turns out that each wanted their own place so you ended up with like my small town that had 400 people in kindergarten through 12th grade had over nine churches And there was no sharing. It wasn't necessarily that they were actively opposing each other, but that did sometimes happen. It happened that 
even with that many churches, there was not a Jewish synagogue. There was not a Catholic church. They, those were all Christian churches. And it created a situation where you were told, oh, you get your choice of religion because we have religious freedom as long as it's Christianity. And it's it's interesting that you contrasted Catholic with Christian there as well. Um, that's not necessarily... Well, that's a deviation that would be a, a very different thing, that there was not a Catholic church in my community. That's... Now, I grew up um, in certainly what we describe as the Bible Belt of America in Texas. And um, while I grew up in a larger city that certainly had Jewish synagogues and Catholic churches and everything like that, um, I grew up in very Christian conservative circles. That was my influence as a young child and teenager growing up. And so while there was never an overt, um, it wasn't as if somebody was overtly saying sex was bad. However, it was implied in the way that it was either talked about or avoided or displayed or presented. And so there was just this sort of stigma about it that it was not something that was accepted or could be openly discussed. And anytime the subject came up as it related to, for example, a politician, um, Bill Clinton was a huge scandal with Monica Lewinsky and all that went on with that. That all was happening when I was in my preteen and young teenage years. And I remember my parents talking about this with their friends. And of course, all of this is from a conservative perspective, a Christian perspective, and talking about what a disgrace this was. And just the narratives that were going on surrounding that whole situation that I now see very, very differently. Looking back on it from my perspective now as a 40-year-old woman and having gone through a lot of the hurdles I've gone through to overcome a lot of the shame surrounding this, I look at that situation now and go, man, there was some great opportunity right there in that moment for my parents and the surrounding circles to talk to their kids and really present this in a way that could have helped alleviate some of the shame surrounding this topic. To me, it was a missed opportunity, and instead it kind of perpetuated the shame that I felt about it. And I was raised in the Midwest, a small town of about 3,000 people. There was 400 people in my high school, and I went to from kindergarten to senior graduating with all the same kids. And we actually had, we had separate churches, but we didn't have a synagogue. We had a Catholic church. We had the Christian church, a Methodist church, but we also had a, a kind of a, a cult-like, uh, an offset of a Mennonite, um, and they're called Apostolic Christian. And that was a very um, prominent religion in town where the those people were on the school board they dictated what kind of curriculum was being taught in the school those people were on the county board their children couldn't play sports 
um, their children actually, before they were members of the church, their kids were the troublemakers. Their kids actually broke into the school and caused damage into the high school library. I mean, they were, but then they repented and they were members and then everything was, was fine. So because of the school board and their members, we were not able to be taught health education from a, a sexual um, education. Uh, we were not able to be taught um, the do's and don'ts or, you know, even about condoms or anything. We, we were not taught. We were not allowed to be taught. Um, so that's where I came from. And it was a very conservative background. Um, and we just, in my family, it, I wasn't, it wasn't sex was bad. It just, it wasn't ever talked about. I just knew what parameters that I had to live around and that it was just something that you just did talk about. Sex was when you were married and it was strictly for, uh, procreation. And, um, and, and like Scarlett said, I was, I, I was older when the whole Monica Lewinsky thing came about, but she's absolutely right. That was a, definitely an opportunity for this country to wake up and to really learn from that. And it wasn't until recently that I, I learned that she was actually portrayed as, as a, a Scarlet or, or, you know, as, as a, a bad person when in all reality, she was, she was a victim in that. Um, he definitely knew what he was doing in grooming. And so definitely the, the Christian values and I'm, I'm Christian. I, I, I have nothing against that or the religion. I'm still Christian, but I wish I would have had a little broader spectrum of, of maybe of education while I was, was growing up. In Texas, I do know that um, a lot of our school boards push for abstinence-only education as well. And so that does create an issue that kids are going to be naturally curious, but they aren't given any resources on how to protect themselves or to know what the risks are to even need to protect themselves from. So you end up with a high rate of teen pregnancy because nobody will talk about sex. That's, I mean, that's that's fascinating because what we have is uh if you're in a public school which most people are you know in, in a state funded school then you get uh at least kind of mechanically comprehensive i like tab a goes in slot b like here's how you put on a condom here's what bits look like and and how they fit together kind of education when you're i'm just trying to figure out uh like how to marry the the different years of school system it's what when i was at school was called fourth form but is now a year 10 they changed it and my kids constantly confuse me by saying which year they're in instead of which form which is like when you're 14 or 15 depending on you know when you entered the school system but i i get the feeling that uh a lot of parents use the existence of that as a way of never ever having those conversations like within the household because the like the most profound New Zealand uh, emotion is a sense of like kind of strongish embarrassment about everything 
uh, you should just not uh, so that people don't notice you is the is the prevail, uh, prevailing cultural kind of mood. We are stuck in the weird yeah, dichotomy of uh, having very sexualized advertising. We have our, our pop stars of, are just plastered everywhere at the same time as being in the Bible Belt. And I heard, I didn't even consider this as being odd until I had a friend from Australia come and he said that he was amazed at how sexualized everything was in America while at the same time being so repressive about it. Yeah, it's it's very strange, um, particularly when you get uh, New Zealanders who try and copy it. So we, I mean, this is not ubiquitous with New Zealand rappers um, by any means, but there was a kind of an early boom in New Zealand rap in the kind of mid through late 1990s. And some of those guys tried to have like the chorus of beauties shaking their asses in the background, but it was it was all done with that like slight air of embarrassment. Everyone was like just not quite into it hard enough or scantily clad in it enough for it to have the same kind of sexual impact as uh, as the American version. So it felt like you know the the American rap vid- video, but like diluted with about a third water or something <laughs> well i will say that um despite the fact that we have all of this in our advertising and all over the place as um vixen had mentioned it is just this this prevalent um societal understanding that you don't go there like you you are especially in Christian communities, you are to be virgin until you're married and then completely monogamous and faithful within that marriage. And especially in the Christian communities that I grew up in, it has, I think, really caused a lot of people misery, to be honest. I mean, I I don't know how else to describe it. And there's people that I just think are dying inside that that can't just come out and say, I'm struggling with this, whatever it might be, whether it's a sexless marriage, whether it's, um, you know, this sex that I have in my marriage is not fulfilling, and I want more from it whether it's I'm having sex outside of the boundaries that I'm supposed to, whatever it might be, it's not a safe place to come talk about it. Because when people do, they're ostracized, they're condemned. It is not a place where people feel comfortable to say, listen, my, for example, I was talking about um, several times I've brought up Um, a guy that I call coach on our podcast, he was in a sexless marriage for 20 something years because he wanted to wait until the kids were up and grown and out of the house before divorcing his wife. And he stuck with it, which was a huge sacrifice. Uh, She had no interest in sex anymore. Um, And the point when he finally decided all right, kids are up and grown and out of the house. And he finally made that decision to divorce his wife because he was living an involuntarily celibate lifestyle. He was completely ostracized. His kids would not talk to him. His community, his friends, his church 
community, all of them sided with her and basically ostracized him for what he was doing because it was not respected at all as a reason to leave your wife, even though he had stuck with it all of those years to make sure the kids had a safe, secure upbringing with a family unit. That was not acknowledged. It was just, this is not a good reason to leave your wife. And so whatever it might be surrounding the topic of sex, to me, our society as a whole, at least where you know I'm from in, in the Bible Belt of Texas, it is so skewed. And it's sad because people are living in situations like that and we can't talk about it freely without feeling like if I do this, I'm going to be disrespected. I'm going to lose respect. I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to lose my kids, you know, whatever it might be. That's sad to me. And again, part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast, because I want to start chipping away at those stigmas. You mentioned like where you're from and, and that does raise a question from me because um, you've all mentioned areas which, and this is, like from an outside observer who listens to some American podcasts. Um, but those are all of the places that you mentioned coming from uh, are areas that in my brain, I go right a bit more conservative. Um, like, have you had conversations with, with members of the fabled, like liberal coastal elite? Um, like, uh, is the, is there a regional difference with that stuff at all? Well, I will say that I was raised by um, parents that moved around a lot growing up, so they didn't get the shame pushed onto them by their own families and communities, for that matter. So I didn't have it pushed on me, but because I lived in a town that didn't have good sex education in the in the public schools, my mom actually paid to take me to outside conferences and stuff to make sure that I was not being indoctrinated into that type of community. So she went out of her way to make sure that I didn't carry any of the shame, even though I was living in one of the more conservative areas. And I do know that one of my um, partners grew up in an area that wasn't known for being conservative, but her family was in, um, basically a cult and she said that when they went to camp if you had any kind of urges or thoughts about another kid there you had to go to the counselor and basically confess your thoughts and talk about it and then pray so that those urges would go away as opposed to teaching the kid well this is natural and here's what you can do about it and here's the consequences if you were to act on those things so that they could understand what was going on and not feel like something was wrong with them. And so despite me uh, being from Waco, Texas, which is known for cult Branch Davidian type stuff, I didn't carry the sexual shame the way that she did coming from a more quote unquote liberal area. And I, um, I, I'm older. I, I grew up in the eighties. So the, liberal point of views were totally different than the liberal, quite liberal views that we have now. It's not even the same uh, realm of thinking um, that 
I knew then uh, and what they're speaking of now. Um, so that was never, you know, I was two hours south of Chicago. So that was never, um, that was never even, uh, people weren't even talking about that when I was growing up. It, it wasn't even like, there wasn't even a differencing of opinions on, it was just, that's what everybody was was thinking. It was, you know, 80s, um, you know, the economy was booming. People were good. You got the, the you know, the Wall Street, the, the you know, the rise of the drug age, the, you know, money, people making money. It, things were, were booming. Um, and probably the, the beginning of, of, you know, sexual awareness, um, you know, at that point, too. But there was not this such a polar opposites from the liberals to the conservative use as there is now. Um, so I never had that exposure. Um, but that's just because of, I, I honestly believe because of the, the age difference that, that I have. And my parents were from Austin in the eighties. So we were, uh, more on the, the drug age partying type thing. And if, you do listen to the Texas episode. He does mention the keeping Austin weird. So they split apart the more liberal people due to gerrymandering and all of those topics <laughs> I was 100% accurate. So there are liberal cities within these conservative areas. And T- Dallas happens to be more on the liberal side, which is why we can have a podcast like this being in Dallas. Sure, the bigger cities, your bigger cities are going to have more liberal um, views. That's that's natural, yeah. And lest you think that that's uh, an American thing exclusively, I uh, every second week for for my day job at the radio station drive out to Fielding, which is one of the kind of small satellite towns around the uh, around the region, and I set up in their public library and and record people's uh radio shows and, and podcasts for them and on the way out to fielding someone spray painted on the back of one of the road signs who ate the natives which is a very specific new zealand history lie um about uh the idea that the maori were like uh conquering savages and therefore them being subdued by the british empire was was right and correct and no one should ever feel bad about anything that happened to anyone um like there is a definite uh rural urban split here which which has the regions swing significantly more um conservative and that's where a lot of the people who are like currently convinced that having um, wastewater infrastructure is the same as uh, communism and also will lead to us all being forced to speak languages other than English for for various reasons. Um, that's where they are kind of centered. Yeah, that's the same thing for us, except it's with any kind of universal health care or national health care program is the same thing as communism. Yeah, I'm, you know... There, there, there are worse things, I suppose. So we are at around about twenty-seven minutes, which is about the point where we usually uh, go for a break. So what I'm going to do is uh, I will break right here for messages from sponsors, and we will be back right after this. 
If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. And we're back. You're listening to Reserved Recommendations on Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Tangata o Manawatu. This is a radio show and podcast, usually about great trash and problematic faves. But tonight, um, we are having a sort of a cross-cultural conversation uh, with three representatives of the Good, Bad, Horrible podcast from uh, Texas. I'm talking to Willow, Vixen and Scarlet about sexuality and, and particularly sexual shame. Um, so one of the things that has become increasingly worrying for people who are not on the internet um, and has been worrying people who are on the internet for a while uh, is the rise of the whole kind of incel phenomenon um i i noted that you used the term involuntarily celibate in its like you know actual real sense earlier but but the reason that i worry about the incels is that um if i had been online as a young teenager i can see how i would have fallen for it like it it there's a very insidious thing about the kind of self-image that uh, lonely young men who are afraid of rejection feel, um, that it just, I can see it hooking in there and being very seductive. And I wondered if you guys had any thoughts about the way that uh, that kind of shame that we've been talking about kind of interacts with that phenomenon, because that stuff's getting quite scary. Well, the question that comes in is, so Scarlett used the term involuntary celibate to describe the husband who he wasn't in the incel community. He was just in a sexless marriage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in terms of incels who would like to be going out and having sex with other people and are just feeling like they are excluded from it, I do feel like our culture ideas towards sexuality and because in the media it's acting like well everybody's out getting laid and you are the one that's wrong because you're failing in some way because all of these other people can get laid they get the girl so what is it about you and so they have to go well crap am i doing something wrong it's probably that you're just all awkward teenagers and really nobody's getting nearly as much play as they're claiming they are but the incel community tends to twist it and say, oh, no, it's because Stacy's out there with Chad. And that's why a good guy like me can't get a chance. I'm a nice guy, so she should want to be with me. I'll just keep dropping in friend tokens and eventually sex will come out of the vending machine. And if a woman sets a boundary and says, 
no, thank you. I just want to be friends. It's well, fuck you anyway, whore. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. This is uh, this is a a cursing friendly podcast, so uh, no worries <laughs> at all about that. Okay, sorry, should have clarified on that. <laughs> but it's the immediate hatred and starting the insulting, and is well, I didn't want to be with you anyway because of blah blah blah. Insert insults here, and I do feel like if we lived in a culture that had a more moderate view towards sex, not that we had the hyper-sexualized advertising and then the girls were receiving the message that if you have sex before marriage, you are tainted and no man is going to want you. And this dichotomy that young people are faced with, or any age people for that matter, it puts way more stress on both genders than should be there or that needs to be there. And I think this is an example of where there are differences as it relates to gender. Um, I think historically speaking, throughout history, we can see there's always been more pressure put upon women to be monogamous, to be um, sexually pure, you can even see it in modern day literature. If you look at just about any modern day romance novel, what you'll find is this continual narrative of the virgin girl, the inexperienced girl, um, and then the, the Casanova guy, the guy that's been around, he's had his experience, um, and he more or less is, you know, wooing this this virgin girl. Um, so there's this definite difference. And, and I remember watching a documentary one time about this topic where a professor was talking about historically more pressure was put upon the women because before the days of DNA, there was really no way to prove who your heir was. And especially in the British American culture you know, knowing who your heir was, was a really big deal. And so there was just a disproportionate amount of pressure put upon women to be pure sexually, to be monogamous, to be faithful, because the, the culture wanted to make sure, the family wanted to make sure that they knew who the heir was and who the father was. Um, so I think that plays into this some um, where, you know, it's it's kind of a, a weird irony that we see here where the guys get shamed more for being an experience, for being a virgin. If we remember that movie, probably like 20 years old now, but a uh, 40-year-old virgin, you know, where it's kind of making fun of the guy that's awkward and he can't get laid. Whereas with the women, it's been the opposite. They That we've been shamed for being promiscuous and being sexually adventurous or wanting sex or, you know, we, we're slut-shamed. So it's kind of this weird dichotomy you see in, in our culture between the male and the female. It's a very big difference there. And even our most sexualized movies, like Fifty Shades of Grey was super popularized, but they wrote her as being a virgin again, like not having experience and the guy getting to have all the power yep. because he had the experience. So even when we yep. do get to have a, Ooh, let's step out of the bounds of that 
our society has placed us in and talk about the more taboo stuff, it's, oh, but she's still a virgin. Which is fascinating yep. because, you know, uh, and if you're talking about kind of texts that deal with sexuality, an early thing that I hit as a teenager was the um, Plains of Passage books. Are you familiar with those? Jean M. I'm not sure how to say her surname, like Earl. Um, they're like about sexy cavemen. Um, no, oh, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, um, the 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 most famous one's called Clan of the Cave Bear, and then there's a whole big series of them. Anyway, they they introduce this uh, culture where what happens is that there are women whose jobs is to uh, sexually educate immature men. Um, so the idea is that they've achieved this power and and knowledge and and that's quite prestigious. And in order to prevent there being all of these young men who don't know what they're doing, um, they're kind of adopted by by one of these women who who likes the look of them. And at like fifteen or sixteen or wherever I read that uh, book, that sounded like the perfect situation for me. Like someone can just tell me the rules and how all of this stuff works, and then I don't have to like <laughs> have the the risk of that comes with with putting yourself out there and facing rejection and all of that stuff. Ah, well, I will say as a forty year old woman, I get hit on quite frequently by nineteen to twenty one year old guys. So there is something there to this whole like milf experienced woman thing <laughs> I, I actually had a reputation for uh loving virgins and being uh the person that was good for educating them and the joke was that i was a tricycle because i was easy to learn on but uh, ah. <laughs> that's probably not the best thing apart from um i mentioned before the wholesome corruption being my uh, ten, uh, it's my motto that I try to bring people into being themselves more because I wasn't raised with shame. I feel like I do a better job at helping people relax and realize their insecurities are the same types of insecurities that just about everybody else has. And just to have a person who is more experienced and isn't ashamed of being a slut was made me a high commodity i guess hot commodity and i didn't have my really my sexual experiences until i was divorced um later on i mean i was um young when i got married and um when i got divorced that's that's you know when i kind of started having my sexual experiences i had never seen porno to this day i've not watched porno movies um just not my thing um but you know and all my friends were like you're such a prude you're such a prude but that was just the way that i was i i guess it was just a different mentality of how i was raised and just a different thought and you know and sometimes I think I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, some of the escapades I was on, but I'm like, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and I'm not ashamed because if it wasn't for those experiences, I, I wouldn't be who I am today. And, and you know what, I, it was fun. you know, And, and I'm, I'm a better woman for it because, 
like I said, I'm, and, you know, I like to think that I'm, um, uh, more well-versed in the, um, in the bedroom than a lot more other women. So I'm not ashamed of what I've done or what I've been through. So, and it might've been later on in life, but that's okay too. Yeah. I, I had a couple of thoughts. I mean, the, the first which is kind of the least interesting was just if anyone is listening to this who who isn't stuck in that like uh feeling themselves stuck in that kind of incel space of like i can't i can't connect with people it's too risky one of the things that i discovered on uh leaving high school and like giving it three or four years and then meeting up with people was that uh, in retrospect, probably around 50% of the people that I was really attracted to and just like hopelessly moping and not talking to would have been into me based on the conversations that we had later. So if I just just summoned the, the confidence right. to, to talk to people and be prepared to bounce off, I probably actually would have got some places and had a better time and felt less awful. So, you know rejection's not that bad i guess is what uh, is, is what i'm saying um, well yeah it's it's part of life i mean i think everybody needs rejection i, I think it's just part of it, it it's just part of it i mean I, I think when people start being afraid of rejection i mean then what it it, it creates us as as persons as individuals and if you don't have rejection i mean <laughs> then you're just being afraid to live. You're being afraid to, to, to become who you really are. And that's sad. Yeah, absolutely. I recently, I actually recently talked to a guy that told me he decided not too long ago that he was just going to start approaching anyone he was attracted to, even if he thought they were completely out of his league and he was going to shoot his shot. And he just started doing it. And he said he was absolutely shocked. Women that he never thought in a million years would give him the time of day, how he was able to get dates with them. So you really never know. And it's highly attractive coming from a woman's standpoint. It's highly attractive when a guy has confidence. And that takes balls. And we acknowledge that. It takes balls for a guy to go up to a total stranger and say, whatever, whatever your line is, but shoot your shot. That takes guts, and we can acknowledge that, and we admire that. And I mean, with the corollary that if the person then says, I'm not interested, that you go, cool, fine, and immediately leave. Absolutely. Right. Um, within, <laughs> within some negotiation there, it depends how it is said. If, if she is like, absolutely not, not interested, say, thank you very much, walk away. But if there's like a pause... No doesn't always mean the conversation is ending. Almost every negotiation starts with no. We do have somebody on our podcast who will absolutely try to beat down a woman and talk about, well, what is it about me that you don't like? I'll change that. I can get, do, I can cut my hair. I can shave this. And, and he'll go through all of that. And it's like, I don't know that that would necessarily work on me. If I had already established that I am not interested and consider continuing to push isn't going to necessarily work. No, you're but right. But if he is very polite about it and say says, oh, "Okay, 
thank you. I hope you have a wonderful night. I might give him a second look later on to be like, okay, well, maybe I didn't actually want to shut him down. Now that I see that he is a reasonable person, I might be more willing to go and engage with him in the future. Right. Right. But to be pushy and, 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 and everything, that would be a big turnoff for me. Yeah, and to be absolutely clear, no one here is saying that you need to like assert dominance or anything like Correct. that. Correct. That that yep. stuff is dangerous and toxic and will uh damage the inside of your head. I did start dating a guy at one point and he had mentioned that he hadn't had sex in three years or dated anyone and I I was like okay, what color pill did you swallow? Meaning red pill, blue pill because of the incel community. And he said, oh, no, no, no. It it was on my own because all of the relationships I'd been in had been very toxic. And I realized that I was dating them out of insecurity. And so I spent the last few years focusing on myself and being the person that I would want to date. And since then, now I have girls pursuing me all the time. And again, there are people that I would have never even considered in my league because of my previous insecurity and not that much changed about me like physically, but because I now have my own hobbies and I have my own confidence, women read that and they're like, oh yeah, this is somebody I want to be with. Absolutely. And never, never, uh, there's a very specific idea, I think, that is like sold as what is attractive, but the actual fact of human sexuality is much more complicated than that. Um, so for every kind of person conceivable, there is someone for who that is their thing. Um, so you should never discount the idea that you might be someone's thing without necessarily finding yourself that desirable. And you brought up a book earlier that you were talking about. It's more of the caveman aspect. And I'm not sure. Is that series fantasy or historical? Yeah, it's it's highly speculative is what I would call it. Um, it's, it's effectively fantasy, even though there's not like magic or wizards or, or anything like that. It's this woman's kind of projection of her ideas about sexuality and relationships um, back onto prehistory, along with some, if you're into like crafts, really interesting stuff about like, they get deep in the weeds on how you do tanning and how you do weaving and that kind of stuff as well. Um, So it's kind of like half historical, but all of the stuff about what Neanderthal and, and Cro-Magnon societies are like is is pretty much made up whole cloth. I don't think that she had any real evidence for how those people behave. Well, there is a book called Sex at Dawn that I would highly recommend for anybody who does want to learn more about humans' development and throughout time. And it focuses a lot on how monogamy was not our base for vast majority of the times that humanity has been alive it monogamy only came into play when agriculture was invented and suddenly you were needing to pass along your land to your heirs because you were cultivating these fields and so now knowing who your heir was became important but our communities that were built on hunter-gatherer type societies that didn't 
own a lot of possessions did not use monogamy in that way. Everything was very community-based. The whole idea that it takes a village to raise a child, it was actually more frowned upon if you knew who your parents or who your father was. Um, And the more the culture lived in an area that was inhospitable, the more likely they were to be polyamorous or have multiple lovers because that was an important aspect of survival of having everybody pitch in. And if you had a culture that was based on monogamy and then one of the parents died, now are the children going to starve? Like (laughs) that's an issue. So if somebody does want to see some of the actual scientific research on these topics, uh, check out sex at dawn. It's a, a, really interesting book yeah well that leads me to the the other thing that i wanted to ask about or or i guess say and turn into a question but was that my i I wondered if you guys had any thoughts about the idea that this kind of sexual shame is like is quite uh strongly correlated with with whiteness um in the political sense at least um, here in New Zealand, we've had a bit of a cultural renaissance um, of both Māori and Pacific cultures. Um, they were kind of repressed for a while, but there are increasingly like academics and, and public figures from those uh, ethnicities and, and cultures who are talking about kind of uh, pre-colonial history. And both of those sets of cultures had a much more communal approach to raising children, uh, a very different approach to gender and sexuality, not to say that they were sort of utopian, um, but, but you know, there was a much more collective approach to raising children. Um, the Knowing who your parents were was important if you're from a specific, this is in, in the Māori context, if you're from a specific set of like chiefly families, but that could be matrilineal, as well as patrilineal, depending on your tribe. And so everything was a lot, uh, it was a lot less focused on this idea of a small nuclear relationship and much more focused on the idea of a community with some very important people who you need to be able to trace the line of because like, there are chiefly titles that do magic stuff. Um, and And I wondered if you, like, my impression is that Britain kind of wandered around the world stomping its particular ideas about sexuality onto country after country after country, um, which is the, which have then kind of gone on and evolved in their own ways from there. But I wondered if you guys had thoughts about that. Well, on our podcast, we have a Puerto Rican, we have a Mexican, um, a half-black woman, um, we have a lady that is no longer on the podcast that is a black woman. And then, of course, those of us that are white, Caucasian. I can say, at least in this circle, from all of these different backgrounds, all of us have experienced shame in one form or fashion. And take Lolita, for example, who is uh, Mexican. She came from a Mexican Catholic family. And even to this day experiences a lot of hangups sexually because of the shame attached to it. Same with the Puerto Rican, uh, Athena. She has a lot of shame hangups. And, and some of that is tied in with sexual assault and things that's happened in her past. But throughout 
all of these women and these different ethnic backgrounds, I see the same trend. Um, Coco, who is the black woman that no longer is on the podcast, um, she would get embarrassed whenever I would hand out our podcast business card around her. She would get physically shaken and embarrassed and flustered anytime the topic came up. Um, and, and anytime I would say anything remotely within earshot of somebody, she'd be like, Shh. you know, so she had a lot of shame surrounding this issue. So from my experience, this is not a white thing. It definitely is prevalent throughout a lot of different cultures, at least in the U.S., I would agree with that. I was actually going to say the Hispanic communities, given that it, Texas is um, at in the south near Mexico, we do have a high part of the um, Mexican Catholic community, which doesn't even allow birth control. And it turns into then uh, getting married young and having many children. So you can have sex within that relationship, but depending uh, on whether or not you're even allowed to divorce or anything, it's still regarded as it has to be within that monogamous relationship. And I have heard from some of my African-American friends that they feel like they get more shame because they are portrayed as being hypersexual. And so now they feel like they have to be more conservative to stay away from that stereotype. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to note that both um, Māori and, and Pacific uh, communities got missionaried really hard early on in the colonial process, um, and the church is, is tied up in those communities in really complicated ways, uh, which I am sure does uh, mess with people in the way that um, the church messes with people in lots of places. Um, it, it's just been interesting, this sort of... Uh, rediscovery of of pre-colonial ways of of handling that stuff that we've been uh, experiencing at the moment, um, and I was I was curious if there was any sort of uh, similar thing going on. Now we do have a lot of the colonialism coming in, but because our Native American populations are already pushed out of Texas for the most part. We don't see that coming up as much in our communities, um, but pretty much every culture that talks about the white missionaries coming in does talk about it in a negative aspect, despite so many of them being Christian now. So it's very interesting. I, I think that if you were to look in um, some of our communities, like maybe in New Orleans, where they were a French colony and had a different type of oppression there, <laughs> you might get a different answer. Yeah, it is. But I definitely think, I definitely think that the, this is, uh, like Scarlett was saying, this is, I don't find it racial. I, I find it more in gender females and it doesn't matter what background we come from what ethnicity we come from we all had similar um issues with sexuality and and i i really think that 
there's parallels there. Um, I don't really think that it's it's about race, any sort of shape or form. I, I really don't. There might be a little bit of religion um, to it to some degree, but I don't really think race even you know plays a, a, a part in it. it 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 depends on the individual and their their life experiences do you think that there's maybe something to the idea of a of a kind of de- devil's bargain between uh conservative christianity and, and capitalism because um, it strikes me that the the you're allowed to be horny but only for products thing works very well for uh for capitalism um if uh, which is is something that uh conservative christians seem to have kind of tied themselves to philosophically it's been interesting since i started this podcast because um i will advertise this podcast in a lot of different circles business networking events um, even sometimes in places where I know it will be taboo just as a fun social experiment or to create content. Cause I, you know, I love stirring the pot. It's what I do. So it's been interesting though, that whenever I go into places and I'm completely open about it, not expressing any type of shame about what I talk about on my podcast um, and the fact that I'm in an open marriage, I'm polyamorous, whatever it might be. It's been really interesting to see the people that approach me and start talking to me and sometimes even telling me things they've never told anyone before because they never felt safe to tell anyone before. And it's people that you would never think in a million years, you know, super buttoned up conservative people Christian people, super religious people involved in church, you name it, the whole gamut. Um, So what I see is that there's this face that people put up and then there's what's actually going on behind the scenes. And I think the problem is, is in a lot of Christian communities and religious communities in general, everyone comes with the, the pretty outward facade but behind closed doors they're all doing the same shit so i I think where you see this (laughs) yes absolutely and i'm sure you see it vixen all the time as a dominatrix i'm sure there's people that come to you that probably we would not in a million years think that that person that politician that church leader whatever they might be would go see a dominatrix absolutely Um, but it happens all the time and I, I find that I am a, a walking confession booth for people. Whenever we go out, it's just like I attract that from people that I don't know. Somebody said, it's because we can tell you're a freak, so you're not going to judge us for being a freak. Right. Right. And that's exactly what I see is people are willing to confess that they're going to swinging parties, that they're into BDSM, whatever it might be, that they're, you know, not heterosexual. These big confessions that they don't feel comfortable or safe to 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 disclose in their communities. And so I think that's where you see what you call the devil's relationship between Christianity or religion and uh, capitalism is that while they put up this front that they're against whatever it might be, porn or prostitution or what have you, the same people that are preaching against it are going and buying it. 
So that's where I think we see this, that yes, at the, you know, we have that, hey, this is wrong, this is sin, but they're still behind closed doors doing it and buying it. This is actually, this plays hugely into my first marriage. My first husband committed suicide. And we were Christians. We went to church every Sunday. That was our community. But my husband had a porn addiction. And for him, it was compulsive. You know, so there probably was some element of mental issues going on there that are, were causing the compulsion. But he had so much shame surrounding that. Um, and I think that played heavily into him committing suicide. I wish now that I could have had some of the insight I have today back then, because I think I could have helped in a big way to say, you have no reason to feel shame about what's going on here. You know, maybe there's something behind the compulsion aspect of it, but the act itself doesn't make you a dirty, bad person. And that's how he felt. He felt like he was a dirty, bad, repulsive person for even looking at it. And so, yes, he would go and put up the front and, and attend church and talk the talk while he was there. But behind closed doors, he was hurting. He was suffering and feeling a lot of shame, but still at the end of the day, buying the porn. I, I have to disagree with, with some of this capitalism and conservatism. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think people have a stereotype that because you're conservative, you're going to church and that you're totally against sex. I don't, I don't, I call bullshit. I don't believe that a hundred percent. I do think that there are, um, wolves in sheep clothing. I, I do believe, you know, there's hypocrites that go to church every Sunday. I think that's there been there since the beginning of time. I think I said that at last week's podcast. Um, but I also believe that there's, there's liberals that are hiding things. I don't think that they're one and the same. I don't think conservatism and people's sexual behaviors or their wants and needs are, are they go parallel with their political views or, or their way that they vote or their way that they think about the world. I don't think it necessarily always goes hand in hand. I think that there could be, I think there always could be deviations there. I don't, I think people think that because you may be against abortion or you may be against you're some Bible thumping, you know, uh, card carrying, radical and that's that's not the case that's not always the case and i don't really think that and there are i know that there are some people that do they hide behind the the bible they hide behind the cross because of whatever reason they're they're afraid whatever but i I'm, i don't know if i really believe the sense that the conservatism and and christians um and, and they're afraid to view things go, go directly hand in hand. As a person that's grown up in church, and I've been in many different churches, uh, predominantly fundamental, you know, Baptist, non-denominational, charismatic, all in that realm. I want to do a social experiment because I think it would be very interesting to see what would happen 
if I went into the same churches I grew up in, if I went into those those same communities as a openly polyamorous, openly in an open marriage, um, with my sex podcast, without any shame, without trying to hide it in any way, and just went in there and went to Bible studies, talked theology, you know, participated in the community like anyone else there, but as an openly promiscuous sexually promiscuous woman i think it would be very fascinating to see how people in the church would react to that because while they do preach love and forgiveness and all of this it's all within a framework and if you go in there saying yes i'm having an affair i'm sleeping with someone outside my marriage but you're coming at it from a place of saying i understand that sin and I'm trying to to basically repent or you know redeem myself in some, in some way, then they'll work with that. But someone that comes in saying, I don't see a problem with this in any way, that would be an interesting social experiment. And I've had people tell me in different situations where they did not see a problem with something that the church clearly saw a problem with, they were actually told, you need to leave. Well, so yeah. Is, yeah. So there and, is a social framework within churches, by and large, generally speaking, that you really have to adhere to. It may not be overtly spoken, but it's there. Yeah, but I don't believe that it goes hand in hand with capitalism. I, I don't, I, you're, you're talking about the foundation of, of their beliefs. You're, you're talking about 10 commandments you know, and, and that's their fundamental foundation. But I don't know if that, if that, if that goes back to uh, capitalism, I, I don't think that that is really one of the same. I, I don't think it's caused by capitalism by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think the history of the development of capitalism is very, tied to the history of of protestantism in particular um the those two things historically have been exported from britain together oh i believe that you know i mean we were we were founded one nation under god i mean it's 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 you know that was only added in the 50s well but we still were principal under our founding fathers and and that's what they did. They they went. They left England for because of the religious prosecution that they were under in Britain. And so, whatever the case may be, I I understand that it it the the country was set up for capitalism. But I also understand that this country was also set up with the founding of of religion. But it was also set up for the Ten Commandments, and yeah, you're going to go into a church and say, "Yeah, I'm I'm committing a sin, and and I'm okay with it, and I'm going to keep doing it." Yeah, they're probably going to have a, a problem with it, but I don't believe that that goes with uh, the stock market differences, or if I'm going to purchase a new car next week or I, I don't really think that that goes hand in hand. I don't, I don't think that's got anything to do with the other. 
I think there's a, a different aspect on that. Um, one, for people in New Zealand who don't know, our, our country is actually founded a, on a separation of church and state because they did not want one church being involved with the government. They the or controlling the government. So that was purposely put in that there would not be a single religion. But with the, you asking about the rise of both of them, I think sometimes what we've been seeing, particularly within the last few years, is that I think capitalism has been pulling in the conservatism and that they've realized that if they have their product and they can hook in, sometimes the conservatives are being exploited by capitalism. And so the idea of like the dichotomy of sexuality and how it's being portrayed by the media, capitalism is going to exploit any group it can and so depending on which tv station you're watching you're going to get some very different advertisements and they the marketing campaigns know that and they hit their target audiences i guess what i was uh interested in was this idea that like uh the gap between being very uh reticent to talk about sexuality and having um business provide all of these hypersexualized uh images if that's that's like that strikes me as a synergy there like like you're allowed to be to be horny for the ads but you're not allowed to be horny for people that's that's really the 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 sense that i got that i was uh curious about and i think that goes back to what can be done behind closed doors versus what could be potentially exposed because it's a lot easier to hide what's something done in the closet, you know, in your own house, you know, you can buy porn on the internet, you can watch whatever on TV or on your streaming services and no one has to know about it. Whereas if you're involving an actual live breathing human being, there's a lot of potential liability there and risk of exposure. So I think that's where you might be seeing that phenomenon. Well, I was going to say, I do think that because our country has so much sexual shame or certain... Um, I guess we'll say. So if you were in a religion that did push a lot more shame on you, the fact that capitalism might be your only way to feel like you have a release for that sexual energy that might, like, I don't know if the people would be as driven by sexual advertising if there was open sexuality all the time, that it would no longer hold such a high appeal. It's not on a pedestal anymore if you're getting it regularly. So in the fact that you're keeping sex restricted might actually increase the amount of consumerism because people are going to be drawn to it. And that might, they might feel like that is an outlet that they can go, Oh, well I can, if I, if I go to this restaurant or if I do 
by this thing, I might get more attention from women or something of that nature or feeling like it's just that little bit of not stepping outside what my religion would allow, but just that little bit of hidden. I think like what Scarlett said. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that was, that was really the, the sense that I was going for was, was that idea that I guess consumerism might be a, a better word was, uh, was kind of driven by that gap to some extent. Anyway, Look, thank you very much for talking to me, guys. You have been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, we are, in fact, over time on the podcast. We will have been uh, cut off on the radio about 15 minutes ago, but people who are listening to the podcast will hear the entire conversation, which is why you ought to subscribe to the podcast. Um, do What I like to do uh, by way of wrapping things up is... Uh, Firstly, ask if you have any any recommendations. If people have um, been listening to this conversation and found it illustrative, uh, you mentioned that book Sex at Dawn. Um, but but were there any other things that you wanted to recommend? Um, you will also get to plug your stuff in a second. I was going to say that checking out our podcast, the the good, bad, the bad, and the horrible, would be a wonderful option for people who are looking to explore more on topics that they wouldn't normally get to talk about openly. Yes. And you can find the links on our website, good, bad, horrible. And that's W H O R E A B L E. Goodbadhorrible.com um, has the links to the podcast. We also have a discord server. So if anybody wanted to come and actually interact with us, we are on there all the time. Sometimes it's just me starting shit and <laughs> drama, but sometimes it's great discussions. And we have multiple uh, channels on there for lots of different topics. And so whatever someone might be interested in, we probably have a channel just on that topic. So we would love for anyone to come join us there. Excellent. And I mean, I want to point out uh, at, at this juncture that, I reached out as nobody in particular from a, a very obscure nation at the bottom of the world, mostly known for exporting hobbits. Um, and you guys were incredibly generous <laughs> with, with your time and, and came on and had this great conversation with me. So you are, you know, uh, eminently uh, approachable and, and friendly. And if people want to have these kinds of discussions on the Discord, I'm sure you will make um, really kind of helpful and supportive space for that. Absolutely. You've been listening to Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Ngā Tangata o Manawatu. The show was produced and presented by me, Hugh Dingwall, and I also composed our theme music. It's called Sack Jazz, and you can find it at wolfboy.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not go ahead and share it with a friend? You can find the last 10 episodes at npr.nz slash show slash reserved, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want an episode older than that, try searching for Reserved Recommendations on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Objective Realty, or you can follow the show on Facebook. And finally, Two People's Radio is a non-profit community access station. If you like this or any other piece of their fine audio programming, why not fling them a dollar or two? You can go to npr.nz slash donate for more information on how to do that. 